1: Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And we've talked about the National Organization for Women so many times on Stuff Mom Never Told You. Pretty much any time we get into second wave feminism. There's now, which is an acronym for the National Organization for Women. There's now. By the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not that Kristen's syntax just completely broke down. There's now.
3: <laughs> mm. What does that even mean? Yeah, and we, we obviously talked about now in our episode on Polly Murray because she was one of the main leading figures helping to found that organization.
2: But we also talked about now in our episode on the lavender menace and the schism within the National Organization for Women instigated by uh, Betty Friedan referring to lesbians within the organization as a quote unquote lavender menace that she was scared of. Well,
3: I mean, it honestly sounds just so well scented, you know, (laughs) lavender. It's soothing beautiful to look out over a field of lavender. It doesn't sound menacing at all. Exactly,
2: Which makes it worse. I know. Well, one source that I was reading about it, too, um, describes her paranoia of lesbians within the organization, particularly like radical feminist lesbians in the organization, uh, as a product of McCarthy-era paranoia Mm -hmm. and borrowing some of that same language. But I don't want to get you ahead of our conversation that we have today with current now president Terry O'Neill, who we were so excited to talk to because, I mean, this really is a cornerstone organization of the feminist movement. Well, for sure. And
3: Kristen, you spoke with her shortly before you and I traveled to now's 50th anniversary celebration in Washington, D.C. And I just want to go ahead and say that when I met Terry with you in person, um, but talking to her was so exciting because I feel like in our day to day life, you know, we tell people what we do. Oh, you know, we are feminists. We have a feminist podcast and everybody thinks, oh, that's very good. Good for you. But to be in a room with all of these hardcore, amazing feminist trailblazers, and then to talk to Terry. And she was clearly so passionate about everything that now has done and is doing and is planning to do in the future. And it was such a great moment. And I mean, this woman was pumping her fist. I was
2: so excited (laughs) to talk to her. And in addition to her just having a warm personality, she is a wealth of knowledge and experience because... Terry sits at this really interesting moment in now's history, you know, as the president going into its 50th year, Mm -hmm. which is huge. But also when she got involved with the organization, it had been around for a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, she wasn't one of the founding members and her entry into Feminist activism and working with the National Organization for Women is really reflective of how quickly now developed its multi-platform agenda that she's going to talk about, because it's something that we probably don't commonly know.
3: Right. Well, exactly. And and what Kristen's referring to is Uh, Going back to that whole generational gap, the schism that happened not only at the founding of now between women like Betty Friedan, who were not so keen on having the radical lesbian feminists in their group, but also today the schism that exists between millennial feminists and second wave feminists, because we as younger feminists, stereotypically, we tend to think of now as just this upper-crust, middle-class, white women's working organization, you know, almost like the original lean-in that wasn't there as a voice for women of color, for uh, lesbian women, that they weren't inclusive at
2: all. But that's pretty far from the truth. But then on the flip side of that, you have these original members of the National Organization for Women who look at millennial feminists Mm -hmm. who are... Active in such different kinds of ways, mm-hmm. um, and are skeptical of our commitment, you know, and are you know question whether we take a lot of their work for granted and understandably. And then you have on the other side of that gap, some of the original second wave feminist activists looking at millennial feminists today with a little bit of skepticism or a lot of bit of skepticism because <laughs> <laughs> our forms of protest and activism in a lot of ways are radically different from what was happening in the 60s and especially the 70s.
3: Yeah. And I think it's easy to dismiss no matter who you are or how old you are. I think it's very easy to dismiss hashtag activism or online community building Um if you don't look deeper into what's going on, if you just brush people off as, oh, well, they're just on their phones. Um, Because it doesn't look the same as picketing or marching. But what we're seeing, especially now in this very contentious political climate that we're in today, we are seeing more and more young people taking that online community building that they've been working at for so long, literally to the streets to protest things like police violence. Here in Atlanta, we had 10,000 people and so many young people marching for those rights. And that included... Not only the rights of black people to be safe in this country, but also, I mean, women in this community as well to be able to come together and
2: protest. And parallel to that is this uncovering of women's history that a lot of millennial feminists are really interested in. I mean, just thinking about the kinds of articles that we share on social media mm-hmm. about, oh, here's the first woman who did this. Here's the first woman who did that. Here are all these trailblazers we didn't know about. Um And that also goes to filling in this, you know, not so distant history of what was actually happening on the ground when the women's liberation movement really got going in the 1970s, because I think it's really important for us to have a better understanding of all of the intersections at that time to inform our intersectionality today, Mm -hmm. because it is very short sighted of us to sit here in 2016 and presume that now is nothing more than a relic of a bygone and more narrow minded era, because that's not the truth at all. So I mean, that's one, one reason why I'm really excited to share this conversation with Terry O'Neill as we, Caroline and I, offer a closer look at the that original founding, the first, you know, five, six years of the National Organization for Women. So just to prepare you, dear listeners, we are going to be going back and forth from our chat with Terry O'Neill to this mini history that Caroline and I will be doing here in the studio but follow along, please, because I really, I really <laughs> take notes, <laughs> t- take all the notes you want. Actually, you don't have to because all the notes will be over at StuffMomNeverToldYou.com <laughs> for your reading convenience. Um, but I, I really do believe that this is such important women's history that we can all learn something from. I know I have learned so much. This episode is brought to you by Quip.
1: When's the last time you got rewarded for brushing your teeth? With Quip's new smart electric toothbrush, good habits can earn you great perks like free products, gift cards, and more.
0: The Quip smart brush for adults and kids connects to the Quip app with Bluetooth, So you can track when you're brushing, get tips, you can earn points, and you can redeem those points for rewards.
1: Already have a Quip?
0: Start
1: getting rewards for brushing your teeth today and go to getquip.com slash stuffmom right now to get your first refill free. That is your first refill free at getquip.com slash stuffmom, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash stuffmom. Quip, better oral health made simple and rewarding. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Get started today at betterhelp.com slash
0: momstuff. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash momstuff. Talk to a therapist online and get help. So first up, we are going to
2: meet Terry O'Neill, the president of the National Organization for Women, who we talked to, like Caroline said, right before we went to their 50th anniversary conference, which we were so honored to be invited to, and... Um, and for a little bit about Terry's background, she is a political activist, a former law professor specializing in feminist legal theory, international women's rights law, and legal ethics, and just an all around champion for women.
4: Oh, thank you so much for having me. And it really is an amazing, amazing time. It's an amazing milestone. And what a year for now to be celebrating our 50th anniversary. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, does it does it seem like uh,
2: 1966 all over again in certain ways of political tensions arising and issues of uh, gender and reproductive rights back in the news?
4: You know, um, a, a little bit, but if, if I it's if, a great way to ask that question, because. If I try to put myself back into 1966, you know, we have so many pictures from that era, and I go, oh, my God, things have really improved. <laughs> we, things really have improved. Um, for example, we now have a major, democ- a, a major political party uh, that, has, that is about to nominate a, uh, a woman, a, a, rem- a woman of remarkable achievement and a woman who is a thoroughgoing born feminist. So that's just extraordinary. I mean, back in 1966, guess who was in charge of most of the state-level commissions on the status of women? That would be white males.
2: (laughs) No surprise there.
4: (laughs) Right. (laughs) So uh, I definitely want to
2: come back to Hillary Clinton later in our conversation. But first, I want to learn a little bit more about you and have you introduce yourself a little bit more for our audience. Um, And there is a question that I'm borrowing from another fantastic podcast called Another Round that starts each of their interviews
4: with guests with the question, what do you do and why? Uh, okay. So I am the president of the National Organization for Women. Um, our purpose, and it is a new purpose uh, to start off our, our uh, the next 50 years of feminist activism, now's purpose is to take action through intersectional grassroots organizing to promote feminist ideals and lead societal change. Uh, it's kind of a mouthful, but the purpose as stated in 1966 was to take action to bring women into the mainstream of American society. And quite frankly, uh, on many measures, we have achieved that goal. But, but too many women have been left behind. So when when uh, the the conference, the now conference, the membership gathered last year in re- doing a total bylaws revision with a view to our fiftieth anniversary, one of the things that came up was so many women have been left behind. We must really put a a, a true commitment to intersectional uh, organizing right into our bylaws.
3: So it's important to note there and and really reemphasize the fact that. Terry is stressing the importance of intersectionality, both in now's past, but also in their future moving forward. Because, I mean, as we as we hinted at earlier, now is frequently and has frequently been criticized for a for a lack of intersectionality and not having done enough for different types of women, different groups of women in the beginning at the inception of the group. And I mean, that's partially valid, but it's not entirely accurate.
2: Yeah, I mean, I have a feeling a lot of us, and myself included, until I I read a lot and talked to Terry, but a lot of us probably don't know the details of how the National Organization for Women happened. Um, And it's kind of a fascinating story that begins in 1965. (laughs) That's right. That's when Polly
3: Murray, whom we mentioned earlier and who's a major heroine of ours, uh, she spoke to the National Council of Women of the United States on the injustice of sex-segregated job classifieds. And this is what we mean by sex-segregated job classifieds. It's Well, it's pretty self-explanatory, but it's basically like, uh, over here, we're looking for a well-educated man to be a boss. And make a lot of money. Make a lot of money and, and wear suits. And I'm sure that was specified just like that. And then over here, we've got the classifieds for women, where you've got to be
2: the saucy little minx to be a secretary looking for a <laughs> saucy minx who doesn't <laughs> mind being underpaid and probably sexually harassed constantly so polly murray's talk inspires a labor union activist in the audience you've probably heard of named betty Friedan. um she had just published the feminine mystique which you know was this groundbreaking feminist text Identifying the quote unquote problem, uh, without a name, which essentially is that, hey, uh, me and all my, my ladies went to Barnard and Vassar, et cetera, and now we're housewives. What's up with that? <laughs> and Betty Friedan, who had been really involved in labor activism, contacts Murray because she's like, lady, you're singing my song. Let's talk. <laughs> And then that that kind of gets things going, which leads us into nineteen sixty six when the annual national conference of the state commissions on the status of women take place, <laughs> which is kind of a big deal because there was this presidential council on the status of women, which Polly Murray and other uh you know notable folks were appointed to to essentially tell the White House what was up with all of the gender equality going on. So these people involved in these commissions were really excited at the prospect of the government paying attention to women's issues, but also kind of frustrated that they weren't really seeing much action out of it.
3: Yeah, well, exactly. They were excited at the prospect. Right. (laughs) But in
2: reality, not much was going on. Now, before we arrive at the national conference, what's been happening in preceding months with Betty Friedan is that, according to her, she's been hearing from scores of suffragettes, as she called them, who had campaigned for the right to vote way back when, who Mm -hmm. were beside themselves and completely marginalized in general, like after the 19th Amendment happened the government was like, hey, ladies, you can vote, so hands off. Y'all just, like, get back to the kitchen or something. I don't know, maybe get a job where you can be underpaid and sexually harassed. I don't really care. Um, <laughs> but these, you know, women who had dedicated their lives for suffrage were now so concerned that Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act was not being enforced. And Title Seven is the clause stating that you essentially can't discriminate in employment on the basis of things including sex
3: yeah race color
2: religion sex and national origin but a lot of women were getting frustrated that the eeoc seemed to be kind of overlooking the word sex in the civil rights act so now we arrive at the national conference
3: yeah. So Fredan shows up. She's definitely not pleased. And she ends up publicly denouncing the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission's poor enforcement of Title VII.
2: And Polly Murray and fellow labor activist Dorothy Hayner get wind of Fredan being there. She's there as press. Uh, they hear about her denouncing the EEOC. They convince her to meet with them and some other women in a hotel room where they essentially hatched a plan to demand more action from the EEOC at this national conference. But the next day at the conference, they were rebuffed.
3: I feel like this should be a movie. Like all of these brilliant women getting together in a hotel room to plot. <laughs> plot for equality. I love
2: it. A plot, as in, you know, like a narrative oh, plot for oh, equality, double meaning. Oh. This movie is writing itself, Caroline. I
3: I would watch it <laughs> after it writes itself because I'm not writing it. So after they do the plotting, and then the plotting falls through because the EOC is like, nah, they are furious and still want to take action. so this is what prompts them to form the National Organization for Women. They explicitly want to create actionable change without all of this governmental red tape getting in the way. And this is also what we referred to in our episode on Polly
2: Murray as the, quote, NAACP for women. So... While the National Organization for Women, I think, is usually portrayed as just this brainchild of Betty Friedan alone, mm-hmm. it was not that. And we want to correct a couple more over generalizations, courtesy of Marianne Barasco's very helpful book, Governing Now, Grassroots Activism in the National Organization for Women, because Barrasco kind of breaks it down, you know, asking Was this an exclusively white middle class group of women who were solely intent on elevating their own legal status and employment prospects? And the answer is yes and no. I mean, because you have to remember that Betty Friedan is coming from, you know, a labor activism background. She herself is super white, super, uh, super middle class. Sure. And she also mined
3: for those early members of now. She also mined sort of the top rung of of professional women. And, I mean, if you just look at the women who, are, who have reached that point in the career ladder, they're not breaking the glass ceiling yet, so to speak, but those did tend to be fellow middle-class white ladies, basically. So, yes, the answer is yes and no. Exactly.
2: And Terry O'Neill addresses this in terms of the reality of how the organization came to be and how it functioned and who was a part of it versus the media narrative that has really established a lot of how we probably think about now, today?
4: What I think is that every movement has cross currents within it. Um, and then you have the media, which has the um, unenviable job of trying to explain movements to the rest of the country, and and, and the explanation of it gets, it's difficult. Media have to simplify the message, and if they can't find a simple narrative, uh, they will make one up. Not out of whole cloth. They will see what they – they look at what they can see, and they will construct their own narrative. So I think partly there's been this uh, this narrative out there that's partly unfair um, about the National Organization for Women being only focused on white women's problems. It, part of the reason for that narrative, though, is that in the media's mind and in many people's mind, sort of the second wave of feminism is now and now is the second wave of feminism. But we know that there were always many other organizations. Like I said, cross-cutting, cross-currents within any movement. Now was always dedicated to recognizing the interconnectedness of all of these issues. But it was also always dedicated to grassroots organizing. And as such, now uh, put a ton of resources into the community-based organizations, which left fewer resources for a massive... Um, communications effort, a massive PR effort, and that just has honestly for 50 years that that doing PR at the expense of grassroots activism has just never been something that now it did. As a result, you know sometimes the narrative uh, is is constructed um, and it doesn't quite capture. What what now's part of the women's movement has been. Now, having said that, I will tell you that I believe that within my own organization and certainly within the women's movement, certainly the second wave uh, women's movement, we do have an intersectional gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is what I what I sort of call it. I, there are too many of us. Who look and ha- look like me and have my life experience, highly privileged, heterosexual, cisgender, well-educated. Um, uh, there are too many women who, when they think about women's issues, they sort of immediately think of their own personal um, experience. I know I make that mistake myself. What we have to do is say, how does this work for transgender women of color? How does this work? For uh, women in the immigrant community, how does this work for domestic workers? How does this policy play out in African American communities? If we are not constantly asking those questions, we are then creating an intersectional gap, and and we are uh, we will be justly accused of only caring about upper middle class white women.
2: And later in our chat, Terry also offered some more clarifying details on really the sexism that prompted a lot of these women like Polly Murray to want to join and help form the National Organization for Women because a lot of these founding members came straight out of other progressive initiatives, Mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, championing civil rights or the peace movement, whatever. Um, And they were often marginalized. I mean, you have usually like men at the top including in the civil rights movement, who sort of left the lesser, visible, more grassroots um, kind of organizing to the women. But in terms of decision making and who was the face of these movements, eh, they they really didn't have much interest in letting women in the door.
4: I think that that like every movement, there are across deep cross currents in the progressive movement. Um, Just as the women's movement has had to overcome the image of being all white and upper middle class, um, the progressive movement has had to come an even harsher image, and that is made up of entitled, uh, uh, privileged white males who in the 1960s and the 1970s specifically and explicitly rejected the idea of female leadership there were no women in the peace movement that were going to take leadership roles there were no women in the anti um uh, uh in the anti the anti-violence movement that were going to be allowed to um to take leadership roles right that was quite frankly also true in the civil rights movement this is exactly why leaders like Polly Murray and Eileen Hernandez um wanted to start the National Organization for Women
3: so like Terry said i mean you have Polly Murray In there as one of the initial organizers. But you also have EEOC chair Eileen Hernandez among those 49 founding members and now was incredibly diverse in terms of the backgrounds and professions of the women who made it up. You you have union leaders like a Betty Friedan, but you also have sociologists. You've got lady journalists and attorneys, religious leaders and even media executives. And in terms of their activism backgrounds that they were coming from, you have women coming out of the United Auto Workers, the NAACP, students for a democratic society, the League of Women Voters, on and on and on. And they even had a nun. So we've got so many things covered.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you got a nun in there, <laughs> Sister Joelle Reed was a nun and a a, a founding member and original member of the National Organization for Women. All women needed now. Yeah, I mean, she literally showed up and was like, listen, I, you know, have devoted my life to the church, but there is certainly sexism there, and I want to do something about it. I mean, why wasn't Sister Act about Sister Joelle Reed? I'm just saying.
3: Talk about back in the habit. Oh, of
2: of fighting sexism. There you go. Okay. We've got a lot of movie ideas just popping in this podcast, gotta say, we should really copyright all of these screenplay ideas. And in terms of the diversity of the members themselves, like the backgrounds they were coming from and how it was rather narrow, um, that was addressed pretty early in the history of the organization, as Terry O'Neill also explains.
4: Look, feminism is simply the belief that men and women should share equally in all of the rights and responsibilities of of living in society, right? That women should have equal um, opportunities for leadership, that women have enormous um, talents and skills to make commitments to their communities, and that this needs to be respected. So, So truly, since the late 1960s, early 70s, has now really got itself organized, now developed a a multi-issue agenda, uh, as well as multiple tactics for achieving our agenda. But from the very beginning, now's, uh, now's issue agenda included not just achieving the end of sex discrimination and employment, but also ending racism, also ending homophobia, and also ending violence against women, which we view as sort of a, uh, that is what keeps us all in our place all too often, is, is systemic violence.
3: So despite all of the overgeneralizing that tends to happen about now and its membership, what is not an oversimplification or an overgeneralization is that these women were angry. And they were honestly encouraged to channel that anger into their activism, basically like, hey, lady, what makes you angry? Let's fight against it.
2: (laughs) And this was something that founding member and former organization president who we saw at the conference, uh, Muriel Fox told Time Magazine in an interview in 2016 uh, regarding the 50th anniversary. And she said everyone there knew that she wanted to work on what made her mad. That's the reason the movement was so successful. We had wonderful leaders, but we had thousands of people who all were leaders working on what made them angry about the situation at that time. And Fox's own anger stemmed from being turned down from a copywriting job on the basis of sex. She went to college. She, you know, graduates and is like, all right, here, here I come world. Surely
3: the world will accept me as I am. Nope. Nope. Yeah. I mean,
2: and the agency told her flat out, we do not hire women for this position. So instead of going to another agency, Fox just kept applying for different positions within the same agency and finally gets hired as a publicist and quickly becomes a VP by 1966. And that's great. And as a
3: lot of people told her, that's great for a woman. Uh, it always had that asterisk. And they always made it clear to her that, okay, well, you've made it as far as you're going to go. Like, you've made it to VP.
2: What else do you want? And that reminds me, Caroline, of a moment at the the conference we were at where I was sitting next to one of the very early members of now and she told me, you can't imagine what it was like to be a woman back then. She's like, it's almost indescribable because saying that, you know, like you're doing fine for a woman, but that's as far as you're going to go.
0: Oh, yeah. And that's
2: it. You know, I mean, you were, you were supposed to accept that. Uh, whereas today, you know, you would tweet that and things would just go viral and. <laughs> We'd have a hashtag. Oh, yeah. There'd be all sorts of hashtags. But back then, there was no even just basic respect for women's needs, desires and autonomy. Sure. But and then here you have
3: this group coming along saying, not only we get your anger, we understand your frustration, but we want you to be angrier you're allowed to be angry and you're allowed to be vocal and have a voice and we want to help you have that voice i mean that's pretty revolutionary
2: yeah i mean what scares society more than the thought of an angry woman
3: and an angry woman talking
2: yeah i mean (laughs) how quickly do we jump to marginalize angry women shut them down as being hysterical or overly emotional especially Mm -hmm. women of color oh yeah there's so much wrapped up with that um but in terms of the anger that really got and would continue to get women involved with now, it's really fascinating to see how it broadened and focused on different forms of inequality, particularly as its mission crystallized into the, you know, early 1970s. And this was something that jumped out to me in talking to Terry O'Neill because it wasn't actually An experience like Muriel Fox of experiencing sexism on a personal level that led Terry to the organization.
4: I was in middle school when the um, when now was formed. And I guess through high school in Connecticut in the suburbs of New York City, I just absorbed a feminist viewpoint, if you will my so 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 from high school onward I supported the ERA however I was not active in the streets uh, writing letters to the editor contacting my member of Congress I didn't do any of that uh, for the ERA I did go to law school I uh, I eventually ended up teaching law my click moment actually came in a in a sort of not going to sound like it's it's completely focused on women, which is, in fact, true. <laughs> My click moment was more about race. Uh, but I was living in Louisiana. I was teaching law at Tulane Law School. And David Duke, um, who had risen to leadership in the Ku Klux Klan, who had strong ties with the neo-Nazi movement in the United States, was running for governor and he was ahead in the polls. And I joined the Stop Duke moment. I did Frankly, I did what a lot of women do. My daughter at the time was just six months old, and I suddenly looked around, saw this guy almost becoming governor of the state that I was living in and raising a child in, and I thought, oh, my God, things haven't gotten better like I thought they would. Uh, I need to take action. So that was my click moment was to stop Duke. And it really got the, – the, the the second sort of deep click moment happened When uh, the exit polls showed, although we did stop Duke, uh, but but 50.6 percent of white women in Orleans Parish actually voted for David Duke. Oh, wow. That was my click moment where I said to myself, "Okay, I could leave the state and have no job or (laughs) I could stay here and try to make a difference in my own community. So what did you do then? Well, I started looking for a a place, sort of an outlet, uh, uh, where I could volunteer my time and make kind of a a difference, and I learned that, in fact, the National Organization for Women did have uh, an active chapter right there in New Orleans. I went to a meeting, and on the wall is a big sign, and it says, it's it's a circle, it says uh, sexism, racism, homophobia, connect the dots. Mm. And I thought to myself, this is an organization that gets me. <laughs> I mean, I do worry about sexism, always have. But quite frankly, I have been fortunate, extremely fortunate in my lifetime, you know, working in Louisiana at a, at a in an elite school like Tulane, I was not feeling the impact of sexism, but I was observing the impact of racism hugely all around me. And to find an organization that understood that sexism, racism, homophobia, these are all deeply intertwined, that was exactly the organization that I needed.
3: And I do wonder if some of our younger listeners are surprised to hear that... The National Organization for Women had such a poster, but it is worth emphasizing that the importance of intersectionality was basically baked into their statement of purpose, which they wrote in October of 1966.
2: Yeah. And if you read it on the organization's website, it notes that this is an historical document because they have since, you know, updated their statement of purpose as Terry's talked about. Um, but it still says so much. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a pretty profound historical document, um, to me at least. And it says explicitly that the purpose of now is to take action to bring women into full participation in the mainstream of American society now, exercising all the privileges and responsibilities thereof in truly equal partnership with men. But then it goes into even deeper detail. Mm-hmm essentially itemizing all of the problems. Yep. I mean, there's not so much of a strategy as as there is just a laundry list of horrible things that they want to change. Why you should get angry. Yeah. Here's
3: your receipts of things being problematic. Uh, so they point out in this document that while nearly half of all American women between 18 and 65 are working outside the home, most of those women have not been able to rise above routine clerical sales or factory jobs or their householder domestic workers, cleaning women, hospital attendants, and they point out, quote, about two thirds of Negro women workers are in the lowest paid service occupations. So all of these things, Kristen, that you and I so frequently talk about on the podcast, issues of intersectionality, the fact that the wage gap is not the same for white women as it is for women of color, that it's greater for black women and Latino women. Second wave feminists were talking about this. And this was clearly so important to now.
2: Well and one thing that jumps out to me in that statement of purpose, uh partly due to our not so mild obsession with Polly Murray is it talking about the EEOC's ineffectiveness in terms of addressing sexual harassment claims in a timely manner. But then it goes into how black women are victims of, quote, double discrimination of race and sex. And that is language taken straight from Polly Murray. Her Jane Crow theory. Yes. 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 So, I mean, they weren't 100% woke, but they were <laughs> at least like half woke, you know,
3: they were waking up, they're
2: waking up, they were woken up,
3: there was almost Folgers in their cup.
2: (laughs) (laughs) There's one for the (laughs) for the 3040 sums in the crowd.
3: So in 1967, now starts to see an influx of younger feminists who are really attracted to their platform on reproductive rights. But at the same time, as you're getting these intergenerational relationships, basically, in the feminist movement, you also start to see a bit of a dichotomy emerge.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is where uh, you have the liberal feminists as they're referred to, which would be the kind of original core now women versus the more radical feminists. And the big difference between the two is that liberal feminists are more focused on changing policy and laws in a way to essentially like institutionalize equality, mm-hmm. whereas radical feminists are like burn the whole thing down. You know, gender roles, throw it out the window. Guys, you, uh, we don't need you right now. Um, we're going to go live on our farm. <laughs> we're going to go live on an all lady farm. I mean, talk about angry like they they wanted none of it, you know. And but there's a lot of gray area between hardcore liberal feminists and hardcore Radical feminists who were living, you know, on the all women farms. And that's women with a Y, by the way. Because as feminist historian Joe Freeman writes in 1974, there were a quote, almost infinite variety of groups, styles, and organizations happening within the movement. But it essentially sprang from the National Organization for Women. And then you have, yeah, the younger generation of these civil rights turned women's lib activists Um, because in addition to now of course you have all sorts of smaller groups including just feminists i appreciated that group organization name where it was like you know what let's just you know let's just call ourselves feminists oh wait
3: really yeah they're (laughs) just
2: capital f feminists
3: (laughs) Oh,
2: there are capital F <laughs> feminists. Yes, yes. Uh, There's also... The, I wonder
3: what all those men on Twitter are talking about. The men, they oh. must be referring to
2: that group. You know it's a men's rights activist when he capitalizes <laughs> feminists. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's something I've noticed. <laughs> but in, in addition to the capital F feminists, there were you know the New York Radical Women, the Chicago Women's Liberation Union, the Furies, and one of our favorites... The Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell. Witch. Known as witch. (laughs) So there's all sorts of activism happening, whether you're talking more about policy wonks trying to rewrite laws or feminist witches staging hexes on... Zapping people. (laughs) Zapping people on Wall Street.
3: And zaps were just like, it's like negative energy, right? You're saying something nasty about somebody.
2: Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I haven't. I I actually have never participated in a feminist zap. Well, Caroline. me neither. I think it's time we do it, I, listeners. <laughs> let, let's. I'm <laughs> Um But during this time, if we look at the National Organization for Women specifically in their first three years, from sixty six to sixty nine, they were largely focused on that EEOC and Title Seven. Enforcement and really just trying to exercise media attention because think about who those founding members were. It was a lot of journalists, publicists and law folks. So it makes sense that this was their tactic.
3: And so things sound like they're going pretty well, right? I mean, you've got now it's attracting all these young women, but you've also got powerful women from the upper echelons of some of these, you know, media fields. Oh, it's it's so wonderful. Feminism, everybody's getting along, right? Like that's totally 100% accurate. Well, unfortunately, around 1969 and 1970, this is when Betty Friedan goes on that lavender menace witch hunt, not involving the group witch, (laughs) no, just a, yeah, just kind of. She's not down with the lesbian feminists around her.
2: Yeah, and we devoted an entire episode to that. So we're not going to go into great detail on it because seriously, you got like a 50 minute conversation (laughs) that you can listen to after you're done with this episode um, if you want to learn more about it. But one thing a lot of people today forget about or just don't know about, too, is that By 1971, the National Organization for Women was like, Betty Friedan, you need to step down as president. We do not espouse your homophobic and paranoid views, and we also apologize. So Terry had a lot of thoughts about Betty Friedan, the lavender menace, and how the organization very quickly expanded its Bylaws and resolutions to include lesbians.
3: But here's the thing you're going to have to wait for those thoughts until next time. Cliffhanger. I know. Oh my God. Do you hate us for this? Ah, uh, feminist cliffhanger? Come on. <laughs> Who can hate a feminist
2: cliffhanger? I
3: know it is exciting. I'm <laughs> excited. I'm excited for you to hear the rest of it, fair listeners.
2: Yes. And you definitely want to tune in to hear. What Terry has to say, because as you can probably already tell, she has even more brilliant insight to offer. But especially when it comes to Betty Friedan's legacy within the organization, what Terry has to say might surprise you. Um And we also still just have a lot more to talk about. So be sure to tune into now and then part two, which will be all about how. Uh, the movement kind of went through these schisms and has continued
1: fighting that good fight. This episode is brought to you by China. The China brand provides premium disposable tableware to celebrate moments of togetherness. Yes, and
0: right now that is more important than ever especially when we're all apart. So recently, I had a group and we had a, a socially distanced barbecue where the host drew out circles and chalk that were nice. six feet apart. And everyone showed up with their own chairs and beverages. And it was really convenient to have disposable products. And we we just had a, a lovely conversation. Um, it was really fun.
1: Yeah. And I'm with the disposable products. I know that the China brand provides durable and trusted products, which I have used before that let you enjoy every moment of the get-togethers and traditional or now not. And
0: there are classic white products that can work for any gathering or cut crystal plates and cups when you want to make something a little extra special. Disposable tableware keeps things simple and cleanup easy. Chynet products are available wherever you buy groceries, including delivery or pickup.
5: Got to tell you about Best Fiends. It's the game pretty much everybody's talking about. Morgan number 2 plays this sometimes before we start the show. You know, it really challenges your brain with the fun puzzles, but it's also a very casual game, so it won't stress you out, which is perfect these days, right? What's great is you can use the game as a way to connect with your friends and your family, all while social distancing. The game is so much more than your average mobile puzzle game. It's five-star rated with over 100 million downloads, thousands of fun levels, and Just go over there, hit download Best Fiends for free. Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Check it out. I do think you'll like it. Friends without the R, Best Fiends.
2: And in the meantime, we want to hear from you. What kind of thoughts... Uh, has this conversation about the National Organization for Women and its president, Terry O'Neill, raised for you. Any thoughts, comments, questions? MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And, of course, if you want to learn more about the National Organization for Women, you can also head over to their website at NOW, which is N-O-W, So now let's share a couple of letters y'all sent to us.
3: Okay, well, I have a letter here from Jodi on our work wife episode. She says, so I'm listening to the episode on work wives and enjoying going through the work spouse relationships of jobs past in my head and all that jazz. No big deal. It was a wonderful episode. I was even tempted to write in to tell you of the hilarity of a work wife relationship I had. I had yet to write in, though, because I always think I'm going to send in an anecdote or comment and don't. Then today, much to my horror, my work wife for the past four plus years walked into my office with the look on her face and closed the door behind her. She wanted to let me know before anyone else knew that she was resigning. It was a sudden opportunity, and she should totally take it, even though she wasn't looking. But this is going to be hard. I moved on internally a year or so ago, but that did nothing but increase our workday and after-hours digital communication and tendency to crack jokes in and disrupt staff meetings. We work in behavioral health and function on many treatment teams seamlessly, so I'm mourning for my loss of work spouse and the ease with which we work together to serve our joint clients. I also have to assist in breaking to these clients that this change is happening without looking like it affects me personally. I'm so thrilled for her to take the opportunity she stumbled upon, but it makes me sad for me. I know that's selfish, but I'll just admit to being selfish right now. Heavy sigh. Thank you ladies for the awesome podcast and the timely episode. I'm going to go pout about
2: this further. I'm sorry, Jody. Oh, and it's so understandable, Jody. I don't I don't, definitely don't beat yourself up over feeling selfish at all about it. Um I also have a work wife letter to share. This one comes from Maggie, who writes, While listening to your latest episode on work wives and work relationships, I had a feeling like I was the protagonist in a teen movie where the book we're reading in English class actually reflects what's going on in my own life. To explain, a few months back, I started a new job that I love. And as you were describing the different types of work relationships that people have, it felt like you were describing my new office. There are definitely a few pairs of work spouses, both sexual orientation matching and not. And there are quite a few groups of work besties. I'm new, so I would classify myself more as an acquaintance right now because work spouses take time. But I think I have a mentor-mentee relationship with the woman who trained me. When I started, she was in the midst of being promoted to a more supervisory role, and I was the first new hire that she trained completely on her own. I love my new job, and it's the most supportive environment I've ever worked in. However, I did also recognize one or two people that would match your description of the toxic personality. There was another new hire that started a few weeks after me that I frankly can't bear to stand to be around. She complains constantly, has a generally snotty attitude that she miscategorizes as being quote-unquote sassy, and will argue when receiving instruction." After listening to your work relationship episode and the part about building bridges with people in order to have better working relationships, I decided to give her another chance. We're both readers and in an effort to bond, I showed her a grammatical error I found in the book I was currently reading, and she rolled her eyes at me and insisted that authors don't have to follow, quote, those little rules. I have a bachelor's in English and a graduate certificate in publishing, so that comment really grated on me. So in short, I've come to the conclusion that not everyone is destined to be work besties, and sometimes the smartest move is keeping all contact purely work-related to avoid becoming something much worse than an acquaintance. The work frenemy. Well, thank you so much, Maggie. Uh, and I agree. Not everyone can be your work spouse or even your work friend. And yeah, having a work frenemy is the worst so keep your letters coming and be sure to tune into part two coming out in a couple days for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs videos and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about the national organization for women and its history head on over to stuff mom never told you dot com on this and thousands of other topics visit HowStuffWorks.com
5: Paper Ghosts is a true crime podcast that investigates the search for the person responsible for the abductions of four missing girls in neighboring New England towns for more than 50 years each case has remained unsolved
1: every day is like being lost
4: in limbo I pray every day that we find Lisa so we can go on.
5: It wasn't until this past year that things took an unexpected turn, a breakthrough, answers to decades-old questions, and witnesses finally ready to talk. I know that that's the person that was there. I can describe what he's wearing.
4: I can
1: smell him a mile away. Jesus, Mary, and Josephine, I hope that's not a grave for many.
5: Oh, you know what? I think it is. Listen to Paper Ghosts on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The Gold Club was the top strip club in
0: Atlanta in the 1990s, with patrons like Dennis Rodman, Michael Jordan, Madonna, the King of Sweden. But in 2001, the club was put on trial with charges of prostitution, extortion, credit card fraud, racketeering, and an affiliation with the mob. I'm journalist Christina Lee, and I'll be taking you behind the scenes of the Gold Club scandal, from the booty and bubbly to the deceit and courtroom drama. Listen to Racket Inside the Gold Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.